You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while hunting deer. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We've got a great episode for you today. I'm talking with fellow podcaster Nick Otto. He is the host of the Hunt of War podcast. Nick is our culinary guru here at the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. If you've listened to his show or read some of his blogs on the website, you know this guy knows his way around the kitchen and wild game. Now, I wanted to have Nick on right now, as many of us have lots of holiday parties and events that we're going to be going to. We have great opportunities to introduce people to wild game, and we want to do it in a way that doesn't leave a bad taste in their mouth, both figuratively and literally. Now, in this episode, we talk about handling meat after the kill. We talk about the best way to age meat if you don't have a walk-in cooler. We talk about storing meat long-term and a few of Nick's favorite cuts and recipes. Nick is a wealth of knowledge, so grab a pen and a piece of paper. You're going to want to take a few notes from this one. Go check out Nick's podcast and blog when you have a chance. You can go find it at thesportsmansempire.com. A couple of things before we jump into the conversation with Nick. First of all, be sure to follow along with me on Instagram at howtohuntdeer or at the Wisconsin Sportsman. That is the best way to get a hold of me if you want to uh, recommend topics or just, you know, send me a message about your success or whatever this fall. Looking forward to getting into some postseason scouting and work here soon. Uh, I'm going to be sharing that on the social media pages. Also, go subscribe to this podcast wherever you usually get it. Leave me a review if you can. A written review is even better. New subscribers and new reviews really make the algorithms happy, which means more folks find this content, which makes me really, really happy. As you're listening to this episode, if you dig it, do me a favor. Take a screenshot on your phone, post that on Instagram, tag me in it. I'll share that. It'll let folks know that you're finding this podcast helpful. It'll let me know that you're finding it helpful. And uh, yeah, it'll help spread the word about what we're doing here. Now, as we're getting into the new year, uh, deer seasons are winding down. One thing that I would love to do during the off season is start to share some of your stories. Now, this podcast is all about learning to be better deer hunters, and we can all learn from each other's experiences. Uh, We can learn from each other's successes as well as our failures in the woods. So if you had a successful season and want to share your story or 
If you consider your season a massive flop and want to share the story of what happened and how we can all learn from that, reach out. I'd love to have you on the show, learn more from you and your experience chasing these animals that we all love. Now it's time to highlight our partners this week. Christmas is right around the corner. Folks want to get you stuff. You want to buy stuff for others. Perhaps you want to treat yourself. Uh, Check out our partners. They've got some great deals going on right now. First up, Tacticam. You've heard me brag on these cameras. Guys, they're fantastic. But right now they've got their 12 days of Christmas deals going on. And man, these discounts are really, really good. A lot of their stuff is 50% off. You can get a 5.0 and a 5.0 wide camera, which you guys know I've been using since last turkey season. And I love these cameras. You can get those for just 99 bucks. That is a steal. You can also get the remote for just $25, and I think you can control up to seven cameras with just one remote, so that's a pretty awesome deal. They've got their Spotter LR on sale for just $150, which is going to be awesome. On my new Vortex Diamondback HD Spotter, really looking forward to getting that bad boy out during the spring. Uh, or if you want the latest and greatest, you can get free shipping on your purchase of a 6.0 camera. These things are awesome Christmas gifts, guys. They make great stocking stuffers. Maybe you or a loved one is looking to get into sharing your hunts with friends and loved ones or maybe uploading it to YouTube or Instagram or whatever the case is. Go check out all their gear at Tacticam.com. Next up, Huntworth. They've got a 20% off deal going on right now site-wide. It is late season. It is cold outside. We've got some absolutely frigid temps this week. Uh, Looking at the place that I like to hunt in Wisconsin, temps are going to be well into the negatives. Uh, Here in Georgia, we're going to have some lows in like the low double digits, like 10 degrees, 11 degrees. That's really, really cold for here in the south. If you're going to be out this time of year, you've got to have some warm gear. So go check out Huntworth's heat boost line. They've also got a great snow camo pattern that looks really, really good. If you're looking for some good things for the stocking, they've got all kinds of neck gaiters and hats and gloves and all those little accessories that can kind of get overlooked. Huntworth does those things really, really well. Head over to their website now to see their full line of products and use the code HLDY20 for 20% off. Next up, Deer Lab. This software allows you to store, organize, and analyze all of your trail camera data in one place. It's getting to be that time of year when we want to take inventory of what bucks are left on our property, who lived through the season, who's already shed their antlers so you can get out there quickly and try to find them before the squirrels and other rodents do. You want to get ready to track those bucks into next year. Deer Lab can help you do that with ease. Go to their website, DeerLab.com, to get your 30-day free trial. When you're ready to purchase, use the code HUNTDEER for 20% off of any of their plans. That also makes a fantastic Christmas gift. It's one of those things that's kind of instant, right? You don't have to wait for any shipping or anything like that. Just go on there, buy your loved one a plan, send that sucker to them, and uh, hey, they're good to go. Now, last but not least, Onyx Hunt app, in my mind, this is a no-brainer kind of gift, guys. I use Onyx more than any other piece of my hunting gear, hands down. And this is a gift, again, just like Deer Lab, that's easy to give. It's instant. Even if your loved ones already have a membership, you can gift them an upgrade to the Elite membership, which gives them landowner info and lots of helpful layers for all 50 states. It's time to start planning postseason scouting, time to start locating new properties for next year, even time to start planning those out-of-state trips for next fall. And Onyx is going to make all of that a ton easier for you. Now, you can learn more on their website, onyxmaps.com, or search for them in your favorite app store today. Now, here's my conversation with Nick Otto from the Hunt of War podcast, talking all things venison. All right, ladies and gentlemen, joining me this evening is Mr. Nick Otto from the Hunt of War podcast. Nick, welcome to the show. Oh, Josh, this is great. Thank you. I, you know, there's a lot of, there's these pinnacle points that, 
when I started on this journey of wanting to do more with my wild game, when I started on this journey of like, well, now I want to tell people through a podcast, like there were those like pinnacle moments as I've gone through my, my stages here. Like there's like the first hundred downloads that you get as a podcaster. Hey, that's great. And then there's like the first thousand people that follow you on social media are like, Whoa, I've, Am I really that important? Well, here I am now talking on a podcast called How to Hunt Deer. I feel like I've got that, uh, what do they call it, impersonation syndrome right now. Like, holy smokes, I am on, I'm on something serious here. Oh, well, you know what? You are, you are, remember this moment because this will probably go down as the low point of your outdoor industry career. And the most disappointing thing that you do in 2022. So just, just so you, you know, set the bar, uh, appropriately low so that we can get through this thing. Uh, but yeah, it's all right. I'll, dude, I'll temper my expectations. Dude, hosting a <laughs> podcast called the how to hunt deer podcast. Like I just have to remind myself daily is like, I'm not the one telling people what to do. <laughs> You know, it's, I'm having good guests on who know what they're talking about. And I'm just asking the questions. Like, I'm not the one that has any kind of knowledge. I mean, you know, this one was started by Dan and the National Deer Association getting together. So people who know whitetails, right? And so then yeah. when he handed it off, it was like, oh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd really love to do that. But holy cow, I'm not sure I'm your guy. You know, I'm not sure I... uh <laughs> Not sure I can live up to it, but uh, yeah, man, we've been limping along. It's going okay. It's going all right. So, uh, good. Good, Nick, good. you are uh, my brother from the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I, um, you've been on the the How to Hunt Deer Deer Camp episodes, and you know, for folks who maybe haven't gotten to catch any of those, or uh, you know, they're typically looking for the more strategy focused stuff. Maybe they haven't listened to any of those so far. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Kind of give me the rundown of who is Nick Otto and what in the world is the Hunt of War podcast? Yeah. Um, my whole venture, I've, I've been in the outdoors my whole life, grew up, uh, camping, grew up, um, hiking and backpacking and enjoying God's creation. And I didn't jump into the actual hunting, uh, aspect until I, I got out of college. I finally finished college got my first career job and all of a sudden I have free time. Like I had a wife, no kids and shoot, what do I do with my time? And I got very invested in what I was bringing home, what I was bringing to my plate. Um, got a, you know, a gas grill. I, I remember it, it was a three burner charbroil and I thought it was like the most amazing thing ever. And I was grilling as much as I could. And I was watching grilling shows and then, you know, I, I want to source my, I want to source my meat better. Like I already had a spot from the turkey farm that I was going to be getting stuff that my family owns, but where do I get my red meat from? And so I started this journey where I wanted to be a locavore, where if I can find everything that I can eat within a hundred miles, that is what I want to be able to do. Cause I'm going to know the grower. I'm going to know the rancher. I'm going to know the farmer and kind of building into that. And my buddies one fall invited me to go bow hunting and at that point, I put down a four-point buck. In fact, he's sitting right back over here over my shoulder if, you, if anybody's oh, yeah. watching. Yeah, he sits right there front and center. He gets to join along. That 
watching that whole experience and it, it being a part of that and watching that, I actually visualized, visually saw that animal go down. And from that point I was hooked. I'm like, this is as close to food as you can get. Mm. It's not within a hundred miles. It's within a hundred inches. Cause then I had to get down and then I had to inviscerate this animal. I had to gut it. I had to bring it home, cut it up. And at that point now, now find a way to cook this thing. Let me tell you, he didn't get, he had a lot of ground pulled off of him because I didn't know what I was doing, but it started me on a journey where I wanted to be able to find out more information on what to do with wild game. I wanted to know how to cook it. I wanted to know how to present it. I wanted to celebrate hunting and fishing through the utilization and consumption of my wild game. And that, and that was the time that Huntivore was born. I was chasing wild chef after wild chef on other podcasts and I couldn't find a show dedicated to that. And my good friend said, Hey, why don't you be that? If you can't find it, you start it. And so that's when hunt was born. And since then we've just been on a culinary journey rather than learning how to hunt deer and then deal with the venison. We came in the back door. We love food and we are going to pursue animals that taste delicious. Man, that, that is so interesting. So, I mean, it, it's literally the opposite way of what a lot of guys encounter, but I think it's one that's probably more common today than it was 20 years ago. People who want to be connected to their food, to know where their food came from, to know that they're feeding their family something that's not been pumped full of, you know, whatever chemicals and antibiotics and all that kind of stuff. Like, so that's what got you was the food side of things that brought you in. That is so, so interesting. So tell me then, like, as you've walked through that journey as a hunter, you know, how have things progressed from you? Is food still the center of it? Or have you ever found yourself like getting into, you know, man, okay, I I want a little bit bigger deer now. Like has, has some of that other hunting stuff sort of started to come in or is it still purely like, Man, a forky walked out and he's getting smoked because he's going to taste awesome. It has, it has been, I guess it's going to be a fence walk. It's going to be a tightrope because as I got into it, there was that, well, here, this, this deer came out, but I just feel like I had gotten the tree. I feel like there's a lot more to then this, this sit. Hmm. Like I know I had one come out early. I don't, I don't need to take that shot. I'm going to let that one walk. And earlier in the season, you know, I'm afforded a little bit of that time. Um, I do feel the pressure though, because uh, just being with the family, there's two weeks that shut off right during the rut, right during the last part of Michigan's bow season, as it turns into Michigan gun season. And that's two weeks where for the longest time I was not able to hunt because I was fully invested someplace else. So I would feel that pressure early on. And then after Thanksgiving, it was like, Holy smokes, like just take whatever patterns you thought you knew and just throw them up in the air. Cause everything's been jostled around. Um, but I've kind of stabilized that a little bit in my, in my expectations is that I'm willing to wait for the bigger deer. I'm willing to wait. And um, as much as I'm not necessarily running a ton of cameras right now because I've invested in a couple other areas. Um, but like keeping a log and thinking of like, man, there is a big brute that hangs out 
over on the far side of the property. And so I'm, I'm conscious of when I go there and when, when I approach that and find the wind out, really taking the advice that I'm getting uh, from people on, Hey, this is how you find bigger deer. But like when gun season started, I did, I had another, my, actually my first gun deer this past year, he was a small buck. And I'm like, dude, opportunity is here. I have zero pride in taking, uh, something that doesn't necessarily have this huge rack. Again, I live in Michigan, so there's not a huge, huge load of big bucks here in Michigan. Uh, but at the same time, the opportunity was there took that deer and I was more than blessed. I let that hang for 10 days. And I tell you that meat is so, uh, it's so tender and I am just dying to get some of those pieces, uh, over to the roaster. I've got some ideas that I want to do with it, but at the same time, like I'm going to let that animal speak for itself. And if I'm gifted with that opportunity to get a big deer, like, of course, just like any guy, I'm going to, I'm going to take that advantage. I'm going to try and go for the bigger one. But yeah, it's one where I just have to kind of play both sides on that one. Yeah, no, I, man, I think that's great. Like for me, it's so situational given the property where I am, given the time of the year, given the state that I'm in, whether I'm in Wisconsin or Georgia or Alabama, like who knows what, what I'm hunting, where I'm hunting. It might be private land. It might be public land. Uh, and honestly, like, when I went into my Wisconsin hunt this year where I, I ended up tagging a nice buck, like my goal was to get a nice one, but on any one of those days had a smaller one come through that got me real excited. That was going to be the one going home. Like there was no, yeah. I'm not one of those guys. that's like, Oh, it's Pope and young or nothing. Uh, no, it's, it's whatever in that moment feels right. You know, uh, whatever opportunity I choose to, um, to capitalize on. So, well, man, so you got a You got a deer recently. How's I did. How's the season gone for you? Are, are you, are you, is your freezer full or are we still, we still trying to get after something? No, we are, we are full this year. I had some remaining, uh, venison from last year. I really did well last year and I, I can go into, yeah, we were talking on, I think an earlier, earlier episode of the uh, deer camp where I mentioned that salvage season is starting here in Michigan where it's real cold. People aren't necessarily watching exactly the ditches and deer poke, you know, popping their head out and getting smucked and smacked, um, taking a couple hind legs off and then stealing the straps off a of freshly killed deer alongside the road. Like in Michigan, you can't get away with that in Georgia, but no, Michigan no. and Wisconsin, it's just beautiful opportunity. You need more ground. Well, shoot, man. It's already been bounced around a little bit on the tarmac. <laughs> it's already so ground. <laughs> Uh, uh, you're going to cut that off a little bit, but at the same time, like, so there's still opportunity for me to take venison there. Um, but I took a, a bow, uh, doe early on and I got to do that with my oldest son. So that was a really fun sentimental hunt that we got a chance to do. Wasn't a big, uh, meat earner for us, but it's going to provide some super tender, uh, delicious meat that we're going to be able to have with that one. Uh, I took a, a small buck. I took the four point buck, um, and the shot placement on that one, I guess that would probably be another thing that is I'm a meat conscious hunter. Like I'm really looking at my shot placement. Like it's not one of those, like, I think I can squeeze it in if I, you know, take this really hard cording away. Like in my mind, I'm like, man, that's not going to result in a quick 
I'm, it's going to be a tracking job. I'm not going to get on that deer quick. Is it worth it for me to lose meat then and, and make a bad shot? Or is it best to let that go and just wait for a second opportunity? So that's, mm-hmm. that's always another game that I'm playing with as well as I want this to be quick, fast, and I don't want to have to have a big track job. Um, Thanksgiving morning, I did get out, um, kind of sucked down some coffee even after we've been working hard as a family. And I got out in the morning and I was presented with the big nanny dough. She has busted me so many times. And I just saw her, uh, call sign, a big knob on the, on her snout. And I, I saw her at 60 yards and I was like, Oh honey, tonight is, or this morning is your time. So I put her down. <laughs> she dwarfed that buck. I tell you, she was heavy. I haven't invested in a scale and I feel like as a meat guy, I should probably be having a scale on, uh, on my hoist and my gambrel. So I need to get a scale so that I can figure out how much she weighed, but it was, it was a lug back to the house, I tell you. And, uh, so yeah, we've got plenty of fresh venison to play with this winter. Man, that's awesome. So, uh, it, that kind of leads right into where I wanted to go next. Uh, I want to talk about kind of two big topics in our in the rest of our conversation. Uh, and obviously, wherever else it goes, that's great. But two big things that I wanted to get to, first of all, is kind of field care and everything that happens between the moment that that animal is shot and that animal going into the freezer. And then I want to touch on the actual preparation and cooking side of things. So let's start with that field care piece, getting it to the freezer. Um do you see any, like, I'm sure you do. So let me ask it this way. What are the common, really glaring, but really easily avoidable mistakes that you see guys making either when it comes to, you know, right after the shot or as how they handle the meat in the field or how they handle it when they get it back to their garage or any of that process? One thing that offers a ton of success <laughs> is ultimately not up to you. <laughs> if I could just say how that animal, like you, you do your best to make a clean ethical kill that you're going to put that through the pump house. You hit the heart, you hit the lungs. You want this to go quick. You want this to go fast. But the time you release that arrow, it's out of your hands. Yeah. When you pull that trigger, it's out of your hands. And now you're dealing with the choice that you've made. Uh, that calculation, I mean, that shoot, that's why it's hunting, not why it's called grocery shopping. Um, but at the same time, our response to that, then uh, being able to then get on that animal as quick as you can after the shot is going to be, uh, very important. You put that through the lungs, you watch your tip over, you watch it tip over. Hey, you know what? Home run, bud. You know, that's the super bowl right there. You are on that animal. As soon as you get out of the tree, it's only been there for, shoot, 45 minutes to an hour, you're on top of it. If you got to make the track job, it's one of those things like you've got to, you got to kind of calm yourself down, but realize that there is that ticking clock. If you put it through the liver, not all is lost because you want to let that animal go and die. That's, I mean, that's, you, you play the game correctly. It's, it's good to pull out. But now when you get on that animal and you're looking at 12 to 24 hours and if it's early season, you're going to be looking at 
kind of like maybe I'm just going to skip going after the liver. I'm going to skip going after the heart, like the stuff that's real close to that, uh, that, uh, that ruminant, that gut, because it's building up that bacteria. Um, maybe, maybe going after those tenders isn't going to be necessarily exactly what you want to do. But at the same time, getting on that animal as, as quick as possible and during a thorough but yet uh, efficient gut job, uh, field dressing on your deer. I talked to a processor local here in Michigan, and I was just asking him some questions. I was hey, what, what do you want hunters to start doing more? Trying to get this same conversation going. And he said, man, if guys would just fully pull out the anus, that would solve out so much of his hassle. Like when you, when you pull it all out, get everything, get that, get that butthole out of there, get everything because that's, what's going to make your meat spoil. If you just start whacking and hacking and, you know, break the gut and have that in there and just kind of like wipe it out. This is the meat you're going to feed your family. This is the meat that you, you're going to eat yourself. If you're okay with smearing shit all over the inside of like your burger, <laughs> then hey, stick with this practice. But we're we're making this transition from field to table. There's gonna have to be some fine tooth combing going on here. Um, so doing a clean ethical job, not being able, not being afraid to spray out the insides, wipe everything down. It's easier to say that in northern climates. I know that guys down south really don't like to do that um, because they are correct. Uh, You want your meat to stay cold. You want your meat to stay dry. You don't want to have just moisture hanging out. That that breeds bacteria. And shoot, when you get down south into Georgia and Alabama and states like that, like, shoot, just standing there, you get sweaty. You get moisture. And you start to smell and then you're still living. So yep. give it to an animal that's dead at that point. It's, it's really tough. You want to make that dry. You want to have moving air across it here in the North. Shoot. I spray that out and I leave that in a cold breeze and we're going to be set. I can hang it up for 10 days and not have a problem um, and really get a good age on, or at least an initial age on that venison. But yeah, being able to get on top of that animal as quickly as you can. And once you're able to do that, doing a very thorough gut job that is going to go a long ways in the translation of a live animal to be able to provide very good business. Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the how to hunt deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge, making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that's a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions in the past, you know how frustrating it can be to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with a 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. One of the things that you just talked about there is not being afraid to get that anus all the way out of a deer. And I, we've probably never said the word anus this many times on the, one of my podcasts before. But, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I 
And I can't remember where I heard it. It might have been from you. Like you may have said this at some point on one of your shows. I'm not sure. Either way, you know, one of the things that I've been doing, though, is to really give a little bit of room when I'm cutting back there. You know, as soon as I'm starting to gut the deer and then when I'm cutting, just giving everything my knife can, like just cutting up into there as far as I possibly can. And I've found that getting, you know, just giving a little bit of extra room and then just really cutting up into there as far as I possibly can helps me keep things cleaner. Like I don't have stuff dribbling out as I'm trying to gut the animal the rest of the way. And uh, it, it just, yeah, it just goes a long way of like not getting done and being like, ah, there's there's crap in there and I got to, I got to deal with it now at this point, you know? Um, yes. So yeah, it just goes a, a really long way, but yeah, you mentioned deer in the South, man. I shot a deer. I shot my first archery buck on like the first or second day of archery season when I was probably, I don't know, 17, 18, something like that. And I shot that buck early in the morning my dad was still out hunting. I grabbed the deer, got it back to camp, and just sat there for just a couple of hours. And that that deer spoiled on us. We got the meat back. The processor sent it back to us. But everything we cooked from it tasted awful and sour and was just mm-hmm. not any good. Ended up losing it, and that was just just a couple of hours. But, I mean, you know, it's 85 degrees by the middle of the day. And, um, yeah, and I would shot it on the way back to camp. So, it I'd actually walked up on the deer. And so, yeah, man, it can, it can spoil real quick. Let's talk a little bit about that aging piece because that's a little bit new to me. You know, in the South, man, we grab that deer as quickly as we can. We throw it in the back of the truck and we're hauling, right? Like we're moving, trying to get to the processor. Cause a lot of these, you know, it's really common down here to be in hunting camps where, you know, 20, 30 guys on one lease, we're all leasing land together. No walk-in cooler though. You know, the only place with a walk-in cooler or somewhere, right? Why would you not have a walk-in cooler when you got that many guys together? It's like the perfect time to have one. Uh, But a lot of guys are taking them to the processor, getting them there, you know, right away. Uh, So aging has not really been a thing for us. You take it to the processor and these processors are just cranking through. I mean, here in Georgia, you can kill 12 deer. So they do not have room to age your deer. They've got, you know... (laughs) Everybody else's 12 deer are coming in too. And you need 12 of them to add up to be a good northern sized deer, uh, body, body size anyway. Um, so, you know, how can we go about aging deer well? It's something I've experimented with over the last two years. The, the buck I had last year, I let age for 14 days and it was, oh, it was so good. This year, I think I aged for, nine days. And then I ran out of time because we were going to leave for vacation for a family trip. So I had to hurry up and get it to a processor, but I knew if I got it to a processor here, it wasn't going to age. Um, you know, so I put it off taking it there as long as I could walk me through aging a deer specifically when maybe the conditions aren't right to just hang it up. Like I can't put it in my garage. I can't hang it up in a shady spot outside where it's going to get some good airflow. I've got to figure out some way to age it in my basement or in a cooler or in a refrigerator? How do I do it? Well, I'm glad you said refrigerator because that is my go-to. I have a refrigerator that is specifically deer and beer. That is its sole purpose in life. In fact, that big doe that I got is still in that uh, refrigerator. Um, She had nine days hanging in. 
we had a big cup party. And so I just moved her over to the fridge so that I, we could clear off more space for everybody else's deer. Um, but having a fridge that you can take the racks out of the bottom and be able you know, at that point it's nice because then shoot, you just run the garden hose in there after you're all done, you're going to hang these quarters in there. When I'm aging a deer and I'm using that refrigerator, and even if I'm going to a cooler at that point, um, keeping things again, like just like we were saying, uh, when we first get that deer, you can give it a rinse off, but you're going to want to be able to get it dry. Um, more often than not, most fro- most fr- or the refrigerators now are frost-free, unless you've got one from the 50s that just doesn't seem to die. Um, you, you want to <laughs> patch your meat down there, or even throw in a little dehumidifier uh, in a refrigerator like that. But now most of them are a little bit, fro- they're, they're frost-free, it's an easy system, and just hanging quarters that are on the bone in that refrigerator. Somehow make a little rack system, whether you use the actual shelves that are in there, just being able so you can get some airflow around those hinds and around uh, the shoulders and even the, the rib sections, just so that air can move in and around those areas. Um, yeah, pulling out, pulling out all those shelves, being able to hang those up, and you can get several days. I wouldn't necessarily push it to like 14 days. There's nothing better than having a cold spell and be able to hold it up, you know, straight around – you know, fifties is a high during the day and you put it in a shady uh, garage with a nice concrete floor where those lows get down into the thirties. Like that's just the beautiful setup right there. Um, but being able to get it into that refrigerator and just having air move around those, that's a good way uh, to give yourself a few more days. If you're trying to push towards, you know, getting up in there to like the five, six, I wouldn't go further than that just because a refrigerator is, I mean, it, it can only put out so much cooling power as it, as it, as it does, you know, it's going to be that deer is going to overwhelm it. Um, helping with that bacteria thing. If you're still ro- worried about some of that bacteria growth in there, um, using a vinegar spray and spraying everything down with an acidic solution, be it like a vinegar, that's going to help inhibit any mold that you're going to be starting to grow in those because you know you get a fridge you close it up if you're not down there to open it up every couple days just to be able to have air you know basically replace the air that's in there to kind of move things around you could get stagnant you have mold that is growing in those uh the refrigerator unit or the freezer unit itself and it's pushing those around and you don't want that to incubate and so maybe hitting that hitting some of those areas on your deer with uh, a spray of vinegar i took that uh tip off of a um, a guy who butchers his own lamps, he does that cause he's got these, this big, uh, cooler unit that he puts it in and he was having trouble with mold. So he actually would just spray a little bit of, of uh, vinegar all over his carcasses. And I thought that was wow. a really neat trick to bring into, uh, the deer setup, but now even to take it to the, the cooler aspect, um, take your plug out, throw a whole bunch of ice in the bottom. You don't want to freeze it. So you don't want to put the meat below, uh, below the ice, you want to put the meat above the ice, but the, you want, you don't want the meat to necessarily touch the ice. Okay. Uh, because we got, we got bare flesh right here. We don't want to touch the ice. That's re, not to say you're going to get freezer burn, but at the same time, like that's, that's not going to be a good setup for the meat. You're not going to get a quality, uh, age on that. So throwing, basically keeping it in the bags, throwing it in the cooler, maybe even throwing another big piece of plastic, heavier plastic over the top of that, like a contractor bag uh, would be great to throw that on the top, lay the quarters, 
on top of that, close that thing up. And I just would not open that top for like another, like two days, open it back up. Uh, after those two days, you know, make sure all that water's out, replace with new ice. I mean, as of right now, ice has not gotten expensive. Everything else has got a short, uh, <laughs> a short like supply chain, everything, you know, fuels all over the place when it comes to that. Like ice is still cheap. So I would say live on, live on that, but that's going to get you in a, in a space like Georgia or a space like Alabama, that's going to buy you, I would say two days at a time. Would I want again, do I want to go a full 14 out of a cooler? No, but to extend that to maybe five days where I've got cool pieces of meat that I now can find myself a refrigerator, find myself the hunting camp that was thinking ahead that has a walk-in situation. Like those are what that's going to buy me some time to be able to do that. Cause now we're at this point, you're in a cooler, you've shut off airflow. It's now just the idea of temperature there's not going to be any like moisture loss from the big, the meat pieces here. So now you're going to deal with a stagnant situation at that point. So it's going to buy you some time, but that, at that point you can then get it to a refrigerator. You can get it to a walk-in situation. You can get it to the processor. So yeah, like you said, like at some point there's just one of those things like situations going to, you know, you're going to get a hand into the fa- farmer's car or a farmer's hand. If you've ever played U- Euchre here in Michigan and, uh, farmer's hand is where you're given all nines and tens, which is not a good situation. And you got to play through it. Same thing. You're in the South. I got a deer. It's hot. I just got to play these cards that I got. How can I buy myself time to get to a better situation? Yeah. So hats off to you guys that hunt down there. Yeah. It's, it's nice to take 12 deer, but at the same time, yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't always treat them the same, uh, given the geography and given the environment. Yeah, absolutely. And and that cooler thing is a, is something that a lot of folks have done. You know, there's the old the old method that basically you fill the whole cooler up with ice and water and people say, "Oh, you want to you want to get all the red out of the meat." And it's like that's not necessarily good for the meat as far as I understand, right? You're Here's the thing, yeah. I'm going to make a lot of listeners in the South upset. Yeah, that is a terrible idea. <laughs> it is terrible. Do not do that. If this is if this is your traditional way of doing things, I'm not going to argue with tradition, but I'm also going to say, there. I mean, this, it's 2022. It's 2023, folks. Like we got to be able to look ahead. We got to look to brighter horizons. And I think hanging your deer and aging it in the air and not drowning it in like basically lucid water. That's deer tastes good. You don't need to get the red all out of it. You're, you're not want, you're pulling flavor out. You're waterlogging this piece of meat. We're trying to get away from the, uh, what, 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 what are all the poultry now that where it's injected? We're trying to get away from the injected and here you're injecting water into that whole equation. So yeah. we're going backwards folks. Let's not put them in the cooler. Let's just use that as a period to get from point A to someplace better being point B. Yeah, that's good. Well, so let's talk a little bit about storage now. Um, Everybody does it a little bit different. Once you've gotten your deer at home, you've aged it however long you want. You've got the cuts that you want to do. And, man, I'd love to go into, like, all the different cuts that we could get, but we'd be here for six days. So uh, (laughs) assuming we've got the cuts because we've gone and we've listened to a bunch of episodes of the Hunt of War podcast at this point, right? and we know exactly what we're going for, it's time to store it. What's your bet? Butcher paper, 
or vacuum seal? I, growing up in the meat industry, I love the vacuum seal. It is, it's easy, it's quick, it keeps everything uh, tight and together. You get a really good response out of the freezer. As long as you've got a good seal, you've pulled out all the, all the water, or excuse me, all the air out of the, out of the equation, you're going to save yourself from a lot of freezer burn at that point. And it's a clear bag that you can label it, but you can also see what it is. Um, a cruel joke that we do that when nobody's paying attention to the guy labeling your stuff at the cup party is things don't get labeled correctly. They get very creative <laughs> with what is written and to have clear bags <laughs> to see yeah. like, no, this is not cat number three. This <laughs> is my tenderloin. <laughs> oh, that's so, terrible. Right. I love it. Now, all that being said, I, I went and purchased a chamber unit, a chamber vacuum. There's, there's the little vacuum sealers you can get. I mean, name your brand. You got your Cabela's, you got your Bass Pro, you got, you name it. And it's a vacuum sealer, um, basically pulls the air out of the bag. And from that, you get either a really good seal or a really bad seal, depending on how much moisture is coming out of it. It, it's a tricky situation. The unit, the vacuum unit is cheap. The bags are expensive. That's the game that you've played there. I went with the chamber vac where it pulls a vacuum on the chamber. So then as it pulls that, that vacuum out, the air is all pulled out of that. And as then it makes the seal, it returns the atmosphere and instantly that bag is sucked right down to the meat and you get a much better seal. You get a great, a great product that's, that's protected a very uh, easy setup with it. It's, I mean, shoot, anybody can do it. There's not a lot to mess up in that scenario, but the unit is so pricey. It is, Mm. it is a buy once cry once scenario. You're going, it's, it's like getting a full suit of Sitka because you know, that's what you need. Like you go with the chamber vac because then the bags are super cheap on the other side of it. So you've already made your upfront investment which if you're punching through a bunch of deer or you're punching through a bunch of you know, wild hogs or you're punching through a lot of wild game or even, you know, just being in your kitchen, you're saving a lot. If that is, uh, if you're doing a lot of already vacuum sealing, this is a great investment for you. Um, if it's not something you do all the time, you just save it for deer camp. One of the little, uh, you know, cheap units is going to get you by. And then it, even at that point, I would even put the little cheap unit next to butcher paper and saran wrap that saran wrap getting two layers of that and doing a good job of pushing out all the air doing two pieces of butcher paper. That is how that's meat. That's how meat has been handled for shoot decades. Like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. There are easier, simpler ways. And you know, if you've got the funds to be able to make that upgrade, awesome. But if, if you got to cut corners, this is one corner that I think you could cut being with the saran wrap and the butcher paper. It's not clear. So the uh, cat number three joke gets funnier because you really don't know what's on the inside <laughs> of that. 
but at the same time, it's an effective work. And I would actually even say, if I had to choose, I would probably do a season with butcher paper and saran wrap versus cheap unit. Save me, you know, save on that cheap unit, maybe for a couple of years and then jump to the big expenditure being the chamber back. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Maybe skip the, skip the expense in the middle so that you're having the funds left over, I guess you could say, uh, for the, for the, for the big daddy, whenever it's time. So, well, man, let's, let's talk, uh, I, I do want to touch on cuts of meat, and the reason I want to do this is I think there are some cuts that maybe either just get tossed because they're not, you know, people don't, they don't think they're worth the time or the hassle, specifically talking about the ribs, uh, or there may be some some cuts that don't get the credit that they deserve, and they just kind of get chunked into a crock pot, or maybe they just get thrown into the grind pile without really thinking through, man, if I just take an extra minute here, I can make this really good. What are maybe some some cuts that are underrated and underappreciated? I just did an episode. I'm not sure when this is necessarily going to air, but if you go back into uh, the Hunt of War lineup and you find where I have a discussion with Simon Majumnar. In fact, as we're recording, that was the day that it was released. And I tell you what, that was a bucket list conversation that I had with him. And one of the big takeaways I had from that was how Americans are very utilitarian in the way that we use our venison. We, we have a shallow view of an amazing resource, but we use it a lot. We use ground a lot. We will, our backstrap is the end all be all. And we have, you know, our five or six ways that we do things and we stick right to it. Whereas old world has seen the animal has seen how it's worked, has seen how to use these different pieces to effectively get a great, amazing dish because I mean, shoot, look, look at, look at poultry, look at, look at a Turkey. You've got dark meat and you've got white meat and we think we can throw it in an oven and cook it all at the same time and have it coming out great even though the breasts are the flight muscles, it's the white meat, it's they're the powerhouse, but at the same time it gets done super quick and can dry out versus the dark meat, the marathon muscles, those things need that longer uh, moist time to be able to cook. And here we think we can pull it all off in one, you know, one roasting period. And I mean, it can be done, but it's still, it's tricky. That's why everybody messes it up at Thanksgiving. <laughs> but it's, at the same time, when it comes to a deer, we want to be able to use each of these pieces, how they've been designed rather than me try to like, ah, I, I don't know what this does. So I'm going to grind it. A is a great way to solve a problem that, you know, to have an easy solution for a problem. Um, cause ground is amazing. But at the same time, if I take a little bit and look at that animal and look at its structure and figure out how it works, that's going to tell me the cooking style that's going to tell me how I can release flavor. I can release tenderness and I can get the most out of that cut. My, my favorite cut of venison hands down is the shanks, both the rear and the front. And it's because it's a super hard worked muscle that Mm. pushes that deer away from, I have watched deer run away from me so fast. I know how powerful those muscles are and how it's able to move its feet and go through difficult terrain. That's all 
those shanks and forearms, like just displaying their ultimate power. And then when I get it, if I, I mean, shoot, I cut it off a deer. I could bounce it off the table because of how dense of how tough that is. Not to say I'm going to throw it necessarily in a, in a crock pot and forget about it. But at the same time, a slow braise, whether it's in a Dutch oven, whether it's in a crock pot, shoot, if it is something you got to have ready within a couple hours, throw it in your Instapot, whatever vessel you have at your disposal, you will be amazed when you give it the eight hours it deserves to just braise in a liquid, throwing in stock, throwing in a dark beer to go along with that because those flavors are going to work together that collagen is going to dissolve. Not silver skin. You can't get rid of silver skin. That stuff is just tougher nails. But all that collagen that's in there holding those muscle bundles together is going to release. It's going to thicken that uh, that gravy, essentially, what you're making or that, that sauce that's in there. Um, barbacoa happens to be a, an amazing uh, thing that I like to do from that. And that's literally basically just making shredded taco meat. And a shank does an awesome job at being able to just have this velvety, folly of party goodness that I can just layer it into a soft corn she- uh, corn tortilla and just have the, the juices running off my cheek. You know, really use the chipotle peppers on this. It's going to accentuate the flavor. It's not going to cover up the fact that it's venison. The second way I like to do it is um, I do it as a, I like to do it as a whole shank. I know Asobuco got really big there for a while because I think people were trying to find ways to use uh, shanks and slicing it into rounds. I said kind of, you know, forget slicing it into rounds at this point. Just do the whole shank that's in there, um, especially off of a whitetail. It's not going to take up too much of your space, especially if you hack off uh, the knob end of the bone there and French it out. But you put that with uh, either a tomato-based um sauce that's in there with, um, your mirepoix, your, your onions, your celery, and your, your carrots. Shoot. My favorite preparation of that, of that style is to forget that aspect of it. And I go a red wine, I go garlic, I go a couple bay leaves and I heavy down on the black pepper. I both have crushed black pepper and whole peppercorns in that. You put that in a Dutch oven and it's a, it's a Spanish dish specifically called peposo. And man, when you open that thing up, I don't care how cold it is. You're going to warm yourself up from the inside. It's a, it's not a spicy that kind of like hits the, hits the front of your palate, but it, it clears up your sinuses. And actually you're like, I don't even have a cold, but all of a sudden my nose starts running a little bit and my eyes start to water up and to put that on a bed of mashed potatoes or to even put that with a savory oatmeal, like Holy smokes, that is a presentation that is, I, I feel like that's the white tail in a nutshell. We've kind of, you know, people love it and people also hate it at the same time. And I feel that falls right into what the shank is. Either people love it or they can't find a way to use it. And just giving it time in a slow braise, I think is going to win a lot of people over to that unsung cut. This episode is brought to you by the Onyx Hunt app. Onyx gives you up-to-date landowner information color-coded public and private land boundaries, and gives you a ton of tools to help you hunt smarter. One tool I'm loving right now is their optimal wind feature, which lets you set the optimal wind for a given location, then tells you in real time whether the wind is good, bad, or just okay for that spot. 
You can try it risk-free for seven days right now. Just download the Onyx Hunt app on your preferred app store today. This episode is brought to you by Deer Lab, the number one trail camera app for hunters and land managers. Deer Lab gives you a simple way to store, organize, and analyze all of your trail camera data. Deer Lab has tons of great features like the ability to filter photos based on what's in them like deer or turkeys or people. It syncs your photos with local weather to help you pattern your target. And you can even mass edit your timestamps, which is a great feature if you're like me and you forget to correct the time on your camera. Head over to DeerLab.com now for your free 30-day trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to purchase, you can use the code WISCONSIN, all caps, at checkout for 20% off of any of their plans. I had heard you say that before, that that was your favorite cut. And so I kept mine whole uh, off of the, the most recent deer. And looking to kind of do what you said, braise them with, you know, some kind, some kind of slow cooking process, right? So some kind of thing where I can set it in the morning and it's going to be an all-day thing. Because I, I got to thinking about it, and that's what I do with my uh, wild turkey legs because they're so full of just, my gosh, it, it's, I mean, if you were going to try to get that meat out of there, it'd be, it'd be really tough uh, with all the Absolutely. tendons and everything. So that, that's what I've done with that. And again, shredded taco meat is, is one of the key things that I've really liked making from that. So uh, yeah, going to give that a try this year. Let's pivot now a little bit, especially when it comes to the shank, right? A, a, a heavily used muscle, something that is um, not going to disguise very well. Uh, brings up the idea that uh, a lot of, I won't say it's how I was raised, but a lot of how I've heard venison talked about uh, amongst family members or friends or that kind of thing is there's always this striving to remove the gamey flavor, right? Like you, it, just go on hunting websites. They've, they're full of articles about how to get rid of the gamey flavor. I have a feeling that that might be a little bit off, um, just because it's, well, first of all, um, some of that gamey flavor is probably because the meat wasn't handled very well. So if you followed Nick's, uh, advice up to this point on how to actually handle the meat, it's probably not going to have some of what you're calling gamey or, or I've heard people call it twangy before, you know, it may not have some of that if it's been handled properly. Also, you want to let the meat, I feel like be what it is. Right? Like, you don't get mad at chicken because it's not beef. Okay? You don't get mad at beef because it's not chicken. Why do we get mad about venison not tasting like a cow, which to me has almost zero flavor when you go get, you know, meat from straight from the store? Talk to me a little bit about preparing wild game, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, a time like right now when, you know, friends and relatives and all that are going to be coming over. I've got a whole side of my family that does not hunt, will not hunt. Uh, hunting will never happen, but they'd probably be more than happy to try some wild game. So what can I do for them not to remove the gamey taste or not to try to disguise it in, you know, spaghetti so that my kids don't know what it is, but so that I can really celebrate and bring out the beautiful flavors of the venison. I, I am so stoked to go on this, like, shoot, I, I left my soapbox someplace. <laughs> uh, I, I got to stand on it because that whole idea of making venison, something that it's not making uh pheasant into chicken, like, yeah, they're chicken like, but it's not chicken or oh, duck is greasy and livery. Like these are things that are a product of their environment where 
venison and specifically whitetails here in either the north or the south, they have a browsing, um, basically they browse. That's their whole thing. This is all information I've t- taken off of how to hunt deer anyway and where to find them. And that they, <laughs> I heard that you, they browse and they're taking off um, bark. They're taking off buds. They're eating leaves. They're eating whatever that they can. These are survivalists. They're going to find nutrients wherever they can. Some of it's going to be more appealing at certain points. And so they have the ability to go do that. Some of that happens to be over in the farmer's field where they're eating on soybeans and they're eating on corn. So they have a little bit of that milding, uh, mild effect uh, from those products. But at the same time, yeah, we're asking an awful lot of a normal deer when we bring it to the table and have high expectations that it's going to be this Wagyu ribeye, not the same situation. And we slap that nasty G word of gamey on it. I think I've been kind of thinking about launching some of my own t-shirts and one of them I thought is like gamey with a big old red stripe through it. Like, no, we gotta like, we gotta cancel gamey because yeah, we need to present venison as what it is. It is a beautiful gift of shoot nothing because how, how often do we go and we have to feed deer? Never. How often do we have to go and try to save deer? Hardly ever, because we are trying to knock down their numbers. They're so prolific. They're so successful without any help from us. Why aren't we seeing this as an absolute gift? And so when you present that, I think one way that I've, I've kind of changed the way that I've done like, Hey, do you, do you like it? And like kind of bracing myself for the failure. People read that. <laughs> If you don't come in with full on confidence as someone from the kitchen, when I'm cooking something, if they've seen that I have wrapped this thing in a thick layer of bacon and hit it with barbecue sauce and they see four different rubs that I've put on this thing and like, Hey, what do you, what do you think they're, I mean, they're already going to be a little bit sheepish. They're already going to be a little like, Oh, I don't know what this guy's trying to hide from me. The whole eating experience is it's on pins and needles at this point, both for the chef and the person that's presented it. Because I don't know when something's brought up to me and I can't tell what it is. What are, what are you hiding? What was the condition that it came into at the beginning of this? And I think that just opens up room for people to be disappointed. When I present venison, granted, I mean, there's a point too where I practice a few times on whatever I'm trying to serve to a large group of people, I'm confident in whatever my preparation is going to be. Um, if I'm trying it, uh, something new, yeah, it's going to come to me and my wife and it's going to go to my kids. They're, they're usually super honest with me, but they're also super gracious. They're like, Oh yeah, you'll do better next time. And you know what? The dogs really appreciate what you made tonight. So good for them. (laughs) But at the same time, if I can go ahead and when I present it, I'm like, Hey, this is the beautiful cut of venison that I got off of my, you know, off my buck, off my dough. It was a great, amazing hunt. Here's what I did with it. And I just, I'm excited for you to enjoy the flavor of venison. Immediately the eater is they're They're into the story. They're into wanting to try it. They're forward thinking. So friends and family that don't get this experience very often, they're already kind of like, Oh, 
I'm ready for something that's not going to taste like beef because we're not talking about beef. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about lamb. We're talking about venison. And as, as you're eating and you're talking about it, maybe pointing out some of the things that you noticed when you're eating it, like, wow, like I can taste a little bit of the oak that, uh, that comes off these. I don't, you know, necessarily not to like play it up or totally botch it up so high. Like you're like those wine connoisseur people. They're like, (laughs) I think there's a little, there's a note of leather. Like you don't want to go to that point, but at the same time to be like, this isn't going to taste like venison and present it confidently that way. That's going to get the eater to be adventurous. That's going to get them to open their mind to that. But then even finding things that just complement venison. Like I talked a little bit with the braising, um, Using a dark beer, just getting those those flavors, the malts and the caramels from the beer to work as the braising liquid, that's just going to play off of the earthiness of the venison. Throw in some mushrooms. I can't think of anything more umami-packed than some button mushrooms or some baby portabellas. Or if you've even gotten to the point where you're harvesting your own mar- or, uh, your own mushrooms, toss those in as well. And that just adds a bolster of wild flavor to it. And it's all going to complement itself together when it's, when we try to just add ketchup or we just try to mask what we're looking at, people can see through that and they can taste, you know, they can taste off flavors, but when you have everything working in the same direction, that is going to have ultimately a way better eating experience. Yeah, man, that's, that is so good. Well, now I got to ask this. Christmas is coming, right? Like parties are coming. People are coming over. We're going other places. What is something, maybe it's a a cut and a specific recipe that you would recommend that I use as like the, the gateway drug for people to get into the wild game, uh, market, because I'm positive that I've got a lot of family members who have never eaten a single bite of wild game. So what would be the thing that you lead with uh, knowing that for some of those, like you said, more earthy flavors, there probably is a, uh, an appreciation that may not be there because it's, it can be an acquired kind of a taste, right? Like any, anything that basically for the average American diet, anything that's not uh, chicken breast straight from Walmart or ground beef straight from Walmart is different, right? Like it's out of the ordinary. So what would be the cut and the recipe that you're going to lead with to, to ease folks into it? You can't beat the backstrap in the fact that it's going to be one of the most mildest tasting of most of the muscles next to the tenderloin. Um, There's that whole concept of uh, when it talks about flavor getting a flavor and tenderness, getting away from the head and the hoof. The further you get away from those two elements, the more mild, the more tender the pieces of meat are going to be. And since that meat runs right down the center of the back, it, it kind of keeps the animal in line, but it doesn't do a whole lot of work other than that. It's not powering that animal forward. That is a great lead off. And I know that's a prize cut that guys like to keep back for themselves or for special occasions. I mean, shoot, Christmas is the special occasion. Um, two ways I think I would handle that. One is going to be adventurous, but at the same time, I think it can be done. And the second is just going to be a really good tactic that I think early 
early hunters in their experience are going to be able to, to take this and be very successful. And that's what we really want is we want people to be successful. Um, it's called a reverse sear. And what I'm doing with that piece of backstrap is I'm not cutting into medallions. I'm not cutting it into stakes, but I'm using like a six to eight inch piece of backstrap that I've kept whole. And what I'm going to do with that section is I'm going to put myself a thermometer in either. It's going to be, you know, a probe thermometer with it, with a dial on it. I know there's the, the Bluetooth ones. I work with a company out of Missouri and I just love, uh, love that family value that they've got going. They've got a Bluetooth uh, probe thermometer. I can hook it right to my phone and put it in the oven and it works. And I get instantaneous temperatures with that. Um, there's a hundred different versions of that, but that's going to be super helpful. I get, I like a, uh, like more on the rarer side of my life. My wife likes really rare meat and I like it just, just on the, the rarer side of medium. So like a medium rare, rare, if that makes any, any guess. Oh yeah. No. But what I'll do is, I want, I want red all the way through that. I, you know, I want it to be, I don't want it bloody, but I want red. And what I've done is I'm going to put that in a very slow oven. So I'm looking at 300 degrees. I'm putting that piece of meat with the thermometer and I'm putting that on a little wire rack and I'm going to let that slowly roast. It's just going to be this slow roll and it, it, it's actually going to have this gray appearance. Kind of like, like uh, for folks that are accustomed to sous vide, this is that kind of that same technique that we're going with that we're slowly heating it through. But now this is a little bit, this is going to take 20 minutes. It's not going to take 20 hours. So I put that in the oven, get that up to the temperature. I would say 10 degrees uh, under what I want my finished temperature to be. So when that thing hits like 105, 110, I'm pulling it out and I'm going to let it rest, let that rest. I'm then at that point going to get a uh, pan super hot go with a cast iron because it just holds a lot of heat in there. I get that super hot and I'm going to go with a quick sear. One thing about venison is it's absolutely, uh, without a doubt lean. There ain't a lick of fat on that backstrap. Um, one of our, uh, other, uh, sportsman empire brothers, John, I brought this idea up to him during one of our group discussions. And what I'm doing is using like a silicone brush or even just like a paintbrush that you've dedicated to the kitchen and I'm painting on just a, the thinnest layer of mayonnaise. And I know it, it threw him for a loop, but I was like, John, just stick with me, man. You paint that on and that emulsification of oil and egg is going to be the searing agent because I don't have any fat introduced to it. If I hit it with oil, the oil is going to scorch whatever seasoning I had on that, be it salt, be it pepper, be it garlic, whatever that was, that's going to scorch that. And I'm not going to taste those flavors. I'm going to taste burnt. So what I want to do is hit it with that oil on those, or excuse me, hit it with um, that mayonnaise on that. And I just get both sides with just a brush, just a thin little layer on there. And when that hits that high heat on that cast iron, I just roll it around every 30 seconds, just kind of rolling around and you get this brilliant golden crust on the outside. And then at that point, slice it half inch thick and then serve that up, you know, nicely kneaded, you know, laid on top of one, another little off skew. If you made yourself a salt, little pan sauce on the side, a little berry, uh, you know, with some stock, some, some, you know, brandy, throwing some, uh, either some cranberry, well, cranberries are pretty tart. I'd go blackberries on those, 
but just make yourself a little berry sauce and then just drizzle that in on the side. Like people are going to be blown away at that whole presentation. And that's the simple one. That's the easy one that anybody, if they would give themselves a chance to make that up, that's going to be a home run for just about everybody. Dude, that's a really good idea. And the other night when we talked about uh, a little bit of how to, how to prep um, some deer meat, we were on the, the deer camp episode. I almost asked you about the reverse sear because I had seen, I think it was Joe Rogan was talking about it or something on Instagram that day. And I was like, dude, I bet that'd be really good for some venison because you always end up with, I mean, if you try to get your pan real hot at first and then cook like that, it's like I've never had good results with venison responding well to that. I, I end up overcooking it every single time. Or you know, maybe the, the very middle might still be red, but then the rest of it is like basically well done because it's like zapping it instantly. So man, that's, a, that's a good idea. All right, so what's the, what's the difficult recipe then? The difficult one is going to be the venison wellington. Mm. And if you're good at following directions, it is, it, you're just building this dish over and over. And this is one of those things like, shoot, make it the week before uh, with a, with a different piece of your, of, uh, of your backstrap, make a smaller one, make, you know, get used to the products that you're going to be using, how they respond. And then once you execute that, you've had a little bit of uh, experience under your belt, like, man, oh man, is it, it's a dish that just blows people away because the presentation is just so good. And there's just so many flavors that work really well with that venison. So again, we're going to be taking an airplane view over that. There is a hundred videos. You look up, uh, make a beef Wellington, make a venison Wellington. You look that up on YouTube and you're going to get a whole shuttle of every kind of, you know, version out there. And essentially what it is, is that you're going to be taking your backstrap and you're going to be searing the outside. You're not roasting at this point. You're just going to sear the outside. So I've got essentially have a, uh, a raw middle and a seared outside. So once I've got that, I'm going to let that rest. And then I'm going to want to create my uh, duck cell or which is my mushroom reduction. So you take whatever mushrooms you want. Um, portobello's work really good. Shoot. If you can get your hand on shiitake's that venison Chicago, the shiitake play is just mm, really good. And if you're going to this whole, exp- whole like thing of going to be able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I would say go for those, uh, those shiitake's, but you're going to chop those up fine. You're going to get those in the pan to start to, uh, reduce the water because when you get that in a pan, it's going to start to have all this moisture come off with the mushrooms. Let all that mushroom go off, hit it with a little bit of brandy on that. And that's going to cr- start to, uh, bring those together and you want to be like a dry paste almost. So once you get that duck cell ready to go, you're going to have your different elements around you. You're going to now have a chance to assemble this whole thing. You're going to have your backstrap and you're going to, Oh wait, I got to reverse it. My bad. You're going to lay out, uh, either some Parma ham or some prosciutto, some, thin slices of, of pork at this point of cured pork. And you're going to spread your duxel onto that. Now your backstrap goes on. You're going to roll this all together and use a little bit of cling film to kind of bind it all. It's all up. Once that has a chance to get together, it's going to be 
basically a nice tube that you're going to be able to then um, cover this with our, with our puff pastry. But once you got that in with that cling film, stick that into the refrigerator, that's going to congeal. It's going to bind. It's going to put itself all together. That's when you get your puff pastry out, lay that out on the, uh, the counter there, bring out your tube that you've made. It's now it's got the layers. You roll that up into the puff pastry, throw that, uh, into the oven. Well, you know, you want to make it look pretty, do like the little, uh, stripes on the top of it, little checker marks and whatnot, but then throw that into the oven just enough to cook that puff pastry. So follow like the puff pastry instructions with that slow cook, that's going to respond really well to the venison on the inside. It's going to come out that medium rare that we were looking for. Uh, probably maybe a little on the medium side, but at the same time, it's going to be done nice that we, it's going to be red in the middle and it's not going to be, uh, overly done. Uh, that's also like really make your duck cell dry as you, as you're putting that together, make sure it, you know, it's good. You do want it to pack together, but the drier you make that, the less moisture that's going to leach out. It doesn't come from the meat necessarily. It comes off of that mushroom reduction. So really be conscious on reducing that. Um, so you don't get this flood of juice that come out the end once you cut it. But along with that flood of juice, make sure you rest it. So once you pulled it out, the whole thing is just looking amazingly brown and it's just ready to be served up. Let it rest for probably 20 minutes because that's going to redistribute that moisture in and around that back strap. So when then you finally make that crunchy cut on that uh, puff pastry and you serve up these slices on the, on the plate, shoot, make yourself a hollandaise sauce, triple that on there, drop that down. And people are going to look at you like a superhero. They're going to look at you as one of the people <laughs> that are on food network. You're like, dang man, where did you learn this? Oh yeah. I listened to podcasts and some, some guy out of Michigan told me about it. <laughs> man, that's, that actually sounds really amazing. I've got, I've got one question that I want to, that I want to lead end with. And it's just a really practical question, right? So when I'm doing this with my meat, you know, I'm not typically going straight from the animal to the, uh, to the frying pan or whatever, right? Like I'm pulling it out of the freezer. Are you bringing your venison up to room temperature before you start preparing it? Or are you trying to keep it cool? Like how, how long of a time are you giving it before you're putting it in wherever you're trying to cook it? Um, it depends on exactly what you're trying to do. Gotcha. Um, for a blanket answer of, am I bringing things up to room temperature? I don't necessarily want them chilled all the time. Now, when I'm making venison tartare, I made venison tartare off a, off of a dough last year, uh, with one of the tenderloins and that preparation calls for as cold as you possibly can keep it without okay. freezing. Um, an amazing preparation. I, that's advanced level. I wouldn't necessarily push people to try that right now, but that preparation, you're going to want things to be chilled down a little bit uh, more versus where if I'm going to smoke something on the smoker or if I'm going to grill a thicker piece of steak, yeah, bring, bringing the, the meat out of that chilled state up to room temperature 
it doesn't need to be 75 degrees, sure. but what they're, what we're necessarily, what we're trying to do is not have it be a chilled piece of meat at this point. So for the sake of being in the smoker, I want to let that come up because I, I want to get it to slowly climb in temperature. I do want to cook this. And if I bring in a chilled piece of meat to the scenario, there's a lot of lost time or there's a lot of extra time that I've now trying to thaw, basically thaw this thing or bring it up to temperature using my apparatus when I could just let it sit on the counter for a little bit. Um, another reason why I leave things uh, on the counter for a little bit is because when I'm seasoning things like a piece of steak, if I can give that season some time to do its magic, to do its work, can I let the, can I let the salt draw out the moisture and get those proteins to the surface? That's going to be helpful. If I can get pepper to be working in and around the meat and have that kind of like penetrate into the meat a little bit further and get those oils to go in, that's going to result in a better, uh, better seasoning. And so by giving those seasonings time sitting on a counter, uh, you know, coming up to room temperature, that's going to provide me with better season. That's essentially what we're looking with. Doesn't have to necessarily be 75 degrees or, you know, 70 or whatever it is, not necessarily, but pulling things out of the refrigerator and straight into a hot oven doesn't quite work very well. So just letting that kind of come out of its chilled state is going to give you a better result. Gotcha. All right. Well, Nick, man, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate all of this. I'm definitely going to try that uh, reverse sear uh, as we head into the holidays. I'm really, really looking forward to that. I've got some really nice back straps off this buck that I shot and I preserved them as long as I could and still fit them in my freezer. So I've got them yes. just like laid nice and like delicately across the top <laughs> of the freezer at this point. And they're just, they're beautiful. Cause I had the, I, I did vacuum seal them, but I had the vacuum seal bags that just kind of like you cut it yourself. So it just went on Going forever. The roll. Yeah. So it's just a super long, I mean, it looks like a, <laughs> you know, the, the pork loins you can go buy at Costco. You know, it's basically yeah. like one of those things, you know, like a moose backstrap you throw over your shoulder. But anyway, <laughs> it's awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Where can folks go to find more from you as far as uh, if they want to hear your podcast? I know you've you've probably got all kinds of stuff out there. So where can people find you? Gotcha. Yeah, I am on the Sportsman's Empire Network. I tell you, that network, it's been, it's been fun to get to know uh, all the podcasters that are on there. If you look for passionate people who are down to earth, most of us have nine to fives and most of us do this on the side that, you know, we just love our pursuits of wild game. We love our pursuits of animals and we just want to be able to share it with the world and share our experiences. So check those folks out. They are real, they're authentic and they know their shit. I tell you what I tune in and that's where I've gotten a lot of my deer experience, but I'm on, I've joined that network. You can find me on Instagram. I'm an at Huntivore. Um, I use that platform to try and push a lot of what I'm doing in the kitchen, whether I'm experimenting, I'm not afraid to show my failures. Um, I'll bring you along on those, but at the same time, I like to uh, beat my chest when it comes to something that I really hit, hit the uh, nail on the head. So I, I try to, you know, give some insight on what I'm doing there and to share that because I feel the more that I can share, the more that people tune into that, it's going to inspire people to try new things. And the more that I see other people doing stuff, it's just a snowball effect. We just continue to want to use more, and do more with the gift that we've been given. We've pursued this animal, we've been gifted it, and the more that we can use it is going to be the best way to do that. 
Um, I got a few recipes over there on the website. So we're hoping to write a few more of those. That's I got through college by presentations. It was, I looked at the syllabus and it had, you know, talk your way through it at the end. Like, man, I was golden. But if it was right a paper, it was not, I had to work really hard. So I should probably put some more effort into writing <laughs> as much as I am talking. But anyway, that's, uh, that's where you can find me both at Instagram at El Huntivore or over at Sportsman's Empire. Awesome, man. Well, Nick, thank you for coming on. Your zeal and excitement about Wild Game is absolutely contagious. I love every time I get to talk to you about it because it's like I leave fired up, like ready to go get cooking. But typically we're talking late at nights. It's like, well, I guess I'm going to bed. Yeah. But (laughs) anyways, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Folks, go check out the Huntivore podcast. You will not be disappointed. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you could leave us a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, you can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, Deer Lab, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show and help me bring you great content each and every week. If you're looking for more outdoor content, check out thesportsmansempire.com where you're going to find my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts.